This is an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. As a second month of the coronavirus crisis begins in the United States, we are confronting more staggering numbers. Top government scientists have braced Americans for a death toll from coronavirus that could exceed 200,000. And the Labor Department is about to release the number of jobless claims that could be double last week's total of 3 million. But as numbers climb and cases mount, there is still so much we do not understand. The very basic question, should all Americans wear a mask, lingers unanswered as the Centers for Disease Control considered recommending more widespread use. Dr. Della Tagapur from Johns Hopkins and the ABC News Medical Unit is with us now. At first, we were told masks were only for health workers. Now federal guidelines may change. What's best? So with masks, we have a lot of different information coming in. The masks that healthcare workers are advised to wear are N95 respirators. These are special masks that require fit testing. They're specially sized to fit and form a tight seal for the healthcare worker's face, and it keeps out 95% of particles. Now, these masks are really about keeping uh, the virus away from the healthcare worker, so keeping it out. Whereas the masks that people um, might be wearing or what the government might be suggesting would really be to keep particles in. And I think the message there is important, but we have to remember that there's a shortage of masks and availability is low. We don't have 330 million extra masks for people to wear every day. So if a decision like that is made, we need to be mindful that healthcare workers and people who are on the front lines and the grocery stores and all these other places where they really still do need the masks, we need to make sure that they have them first. Does this speak to a new understanding of how coronavirus spreads or is this a nod to not everyone is social socially distancing and so therefore let's put a mask on everybody to to keep their spittle inside? Yeah. Well, as of right now, there hasn't been enough data to change the status of the virus. I know there's a lot of speculation and a lot of concerns that this is potentially airborne, but from what we understand now, it's actually just that the virus stays in the air. I mean, we do spit. There are particles that leave our mouth, especially as we've seen in all those images of projectiles sneezing and coughing. So the virus is in the air, but that doesn't make it airborne per se. And so it's not changing the status of the virus. It's just changing how we're trying to be cautious and the precautions that we can take. Right. So far, there's no indication this is like the measles. No, not not from what we understand yet. There's some indication that men should be shaving in order to get their mask to fit properly. I know this is the case for a gas mask for a, a soldier in, in wartime. What about for healthcare workers? That's right. So with um, soldiers at war and now our hospital workers who are also soldiers at a different kind of war, they really do need to be fit tested. These N95 respirators are really designed to be well adjusted to your face. And so for men, uh, there's a uh, infographic that the CDC published a few years ago. Now that was unrelated to COVID, but it still talked about how to best get a fit for an N95 respirator. And for most men, it does require, or for most individuals, it does require a shave or at least to keep facial hair within the confines of the mask so that it doesn't break the seal. Uh, Studies have shown that even stubble or um, just even a, a 
you know, a five o'clock shadow can affect that seal and that you really need a close shave. We've talked about masks in terms of shortages of personal protective gear, along with ventilators and drugs. And now we are learning about a shortage of oxygen because of all the people that need to be intubated who are coming into hospitals with coronavirus. What's that about? So some hospitals are experiencing drastic patient surges due to COVID-19, and it's leading to a greater need for ventilators and ICU beds than they may have typically seen. Well, those ventilators need pressurized oxygen to work. And with patients staying on vents for extended periods of time, oxygen can't afford to run out. Fortunately, for now, some U.S. manufacturers of oxygen seem assured that they can keep up with the demand. But the hospitals that are expressing concerns will need to get more support and fast. Dr. Della Tagapur from Johns Hopkins and the ABC News Medical Unit. We are all looking for more answers to nagging questions about this virus. How bad will this get? How long will I have to live like this? Researchers are now racing to help answer those questions. We're joined from the Mount Sinai Health System by Paul O'Reilly. He's part of a team of scientists behind a brand new app meant to capture the symptoms and spread of COVID-19 in New York City, the hardest hit area of the country. Professor O'Reilly, thanks for joining us. What are you trying to do here? To fight this virus... We need to understand it, and we need to understand it in New York City. So far, our information about COVID comes from Europe and China. In New York City, our information comes from hospitals and from tests, but we know that isn't the full picture. So at Mount Sinai, we have created the Stop COVID New York City study to collect real-time health information across the city. Not only to give people some understanding about who's around them, but to give doctors an understanding of how it spreads. That's right, yeah. So we're trying to get a picture, kind of a full picture, of uh, who's healthy and who's getting symptoms of the virus across the city in all different areas. That could potentially help us find kind of hotspots where there is a particular spread of the virus. This could help hospitals, doctors and nurses and researchers be one step ahead of COVID. They've had some success with this in South Korea, I think, right, in tracing the the progression of the virus? So in South Korea, they've done a huge amount of testing, and that tracing has been based on uh, those tests and the results from those tests. In New York, we've done a lot of testing, uh, but still the vast majority of people across New York have not been tested. And so the point of this study is to collect information on all the rest of the people across the communities in New York, not just those that have been tested or that have gone to hospitals. And so for this to work, we really need everyone healthy and sick with or without a confirmed test result to take part in this study. Right. So what do you want people to do? People can be part of this study by texting COVID, texting the word COVID to 64722. When they text that, they'll get a link Uh, And from that, they can go onto a web app and complete that information. And you really do need everybody to actually do this, right, in order to to do this well? Yeah. The more people we get, the clearer the picture will become. So we need healthy people, people who are just starting to get sick from the virus, those who have had the virus. Uh, We need everyone. The the more people that we get, the clearer that it's going to be. And so really, this whole study is about New Yorkers for New Yorkers. It's almost like a census for coronavirus. You could call it that, yeah. It pretty much is. So once you participate and once 
you start collecting the data, what is it that you do with it and how might it be useful to healthcare providers? There are two main ways that we think this can be important. The first way is to get a picture of which areas may be hotspots for the outbreak across the city and which not. That could potentially be used to be one step ahead of the virus. The second main goal is to find out factors that might increase people's risk or might protect them from the virus in New York City in particular. That's interesting and, and probably key, right? Because so far, many of our assumptions about coronavirus have come out of China. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And some of those will be relevant for New York and some of those won't be. And so we want to get a really clear picture of what the important factors are in New York City. And just to be clear, Paul, we're talking about this as tracing, but we don't want anyone to get the wrong idea. You're not doing individual tracing or surveillance, right? Uh, one part is a one-time only survey uh, where people provide their general health information. The other part is a daily survey, a very, very short daily survey, just with a few questions that will update us on whether people are still healthy or starting to get some of the symptoms of the virus or other symptoms that are not relevant. We really need to know about everyone, whether they're healthy or not, every day, if possible. It is so important and a crucial tool as the city and the country battle this virus. Paul O'Reilly from the Mount Sinai Health System. Don't forget to text COVID to 64722. Coming up, my colleague Amy Robach and our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jennifer Ashton. I'm Aaron Katursky. You're listening to an ABC News special. You're listening to an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent, Amy Robach. With me is ABC Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, there is a lot of conflicting information out there surrounding this virus. So we want to start off getting some facts straight, clearing up some confusion. So let's begin with what we know about COVID-19. Right. And Amy, since the beginning, we've been saying that it's so important in medicine and science to say what you know and say what you don't know. And we learn things all the time. So just because we didn't know something yesterday doesn't mean we won't know it today or evolve how we're thinking. So with what we know, we know that coronaviruses are the family that are responsible for causing up to 30 percent of common colds worldwide. So you and I have definitely had one in our lifetimes. Um, They can also cause infections in the lungs, the GI tract, and they can infect the heart. So that's important to understand. This strain is new. That's why it's getting so much attention and there's so much we don't know about this particular strain. And then testing. We know that a lot of tests are being done, but we also know that the time to get those results can range anywhere from five minutes, most recently, to over 10 days. So a huge range. All right. And then, Dr. Jen, there is new information about this virus coming in daily. So what are some of the things we think we know about COVID-19? Well, just released in the last day or two, a big study in The Lancet based on Chinese data, and the CDC director echoed this, that that seems to suggest that up to 25 percent of people infected with this virus have no symptoms at all. We also think, based on published data, that 80 percent of all cases are mild. That's obviously really good news. And again, based on published data, small reports, the average incubation period is five days. And I want to 
underscore. As we learn more and we have many, many more patients to study, these numbers might change, but that's what we think we know at this point. Thank you so much, Dr. Jen. We will be back with you later, and we will keep giving you all at home reliable information every day. We turn now to ABC's Kira Phillips, who's in Washington, D.C., with all the latest headlines for us. Hi, Amy. Let's get to some of the developments that they're watching for you right now. The U.S. is receiving help from some global humanitarian efforts. A plane from Shanghai is bringing 100 tons of personal protection equipment to Ohio now. Taiwan is also donating 10 million face masks around the world. And a Russian plane carrying medical supplies also arriving in the U.S. today after the administration said Vladimir Putin had offered to help. And here at home, NBA players who have beaten COVID-19 are trying to help others avoid it. At least four players are donating blood for an experimental treatment that uses antibodies to help curb the virus in sick patients. And it's April 1st and the rent is due. However, the downturn in our economy right now is going to make that difficult for a lot of people. The New York Times is reporting that landlords in New York City estimate perhaps as many as 40 percent of tenants may possibly miss their payments. This past weekend, we saw a small slowdown in the growth rate of coronavirus in the New Orleans area, yet the number of COVID-19 cases for the rest of Louisiana are accelerating. The virus has now been detected in 60 of the 64 parishes. And here to discuss this is Louisiana's Lieutenant Governor, Billy Nungesser. Welcome, Lieutenant Governor. And uh, can we start off by just talking about this rise in cases across the state of Louisiana? Where are you right now? Well, we've seen our largest increase in the last 24 hours. Uh, those numbers are staggering, and um, there's looks like there's no end in sight. And if these numbers continue, um, we will be maxed out at hospitals and ventilators uh, by the end of the weekend. And um, so it's a critical situation, and we're still having people not heave the warnings. Yeah, no, I mean, I was going to ask you about social distancing. Uh, how do you feel like your state has complied with that? Well, uh, you know, for the most part, most of the people are, but the people that are not, I understand the pastor that was arrested held church again last night, uh, defying the governor's orders, which is just unthinkable and irresponsible uh, when we're uh, in a crisis situation here in Louisiana. You know, the death count went up uh, uh, tremendously to 239 from 185 in a 24-hour period. Uh, This is serious. And everyone needs to take it very serious. And you mentioned your fear about running out of life-saving devices like ventilators. Are, are, where are you in other supplies and, and what are you doing in terms of getting that support that you so badly need? Well, the governor's team is working on getting them from anywhere we can. He did receive a call from the vice president that they're sending 150 to Louisiana. Uh, we need many more than that. And hopefully um, we'll be able to slow this spread. Uh, and keep up with it. But it is a critical situation. And um, like I said, if things continue on the path they're on now, uh, we will be maxing out our capability of caring for people here uh, by the end of the weekend. Now, I know that 2020 is hindsight, as they say, but you know that people have been very critical of the fact that Mardi Gras was not canceled earlier, and that may be a big contributing factor to the spread we're seeing there in your state. What are your thoughts about that? Uh, It absolutely was. You know, I'm sure it was here. I'm sure a lot of people that came in from all over the world. And I take as much responsibility as any elected official. But remember, um, during Mardi Gras, 
there were only 15 cases in the United States. And hindsight is always, you know, good to look back. But um, but it was hard to uh, imagine uh, canceling that event when we didn't know how serious, how quick this thing was escalate and how bad it would get so quickly. And now we do know. And so what is your message to the people of your state, Lieutenant Governor? Well, is, is please, you know, stay home. You know, having a crawfish ball with 20 people in your backyard is not staying at home. Uh, don't invite friends and people over. We need to isol- stay home and, and, and with just your family. And if you've got to go out, make sure you wash your hands. Keep that distance. Uh, if everyone doesn't participate, we're not going to see this thing over anytime soon. And as many states and Louisiana, it's getting worse by the day. We know you have such a busy and crucial job, uh, certainly in the weeks and months ahead. So thank you for your time with us today. Lieutenant Governor Billy Nungesser, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Over the last few weeks, we have all become vigilant about keeping everything clean to avoid COVID-19 contamination. Just how should we be handling grocery shopping and all those takeout deliveries and keeping our tech squeaky clean? Well, here with some timely tips from a very smart source is ABC News contributor Becky Worley. Thanks for being with us, Becky. And I know that we're all being extra careful when we are at the grocery store. But some discrepancies is what we should do with our groceries when we get them home. What do you say? We spoke with a virologist, a researcher who studies viruses like COVID-19 and asked her how she grocery shops. She's very careful about person-to-person contact in the store. But once she gets her groceries home, she doesn't do anything really differently than she normally does. She puts them away, she washes her produce, and then she washes her hands. It's all about hand hygiene to her. Many of us also want to try and support our local restaurants by ordering takeout or delivery. What precautions should we be taking with that? The great news is, is that most of the delivery apps have put contactless delivery as an option now. You can put the tip right into the app so you never have to open the door. The person leaves the food for you at the front of the door. Then you tip them in the app. You pull the bags in. You remove the food from the takeout containers, put them in your own dishes, throw the takeout dishes, the containers that they came in away, and... Wash Wash your your hands. hands. (laughs) It's going to turn into a drinking game. I think it's like it's all about the hand washing. Yeah, wash them often and as often as and as much as you possibly can. And then we are all touching our cell phones multiple times a day. I think it's my hardest thing because if you touch something, then you wash your hands. You're like, wait, did I touch my cell phone before I wash my hands? So how do we keep them as clean as possible? How often should we be cleaning them? Well, cleaning your phone is really a lot like cleaning your hands if you've touched the phone with dirty hands. So. What the new guidance from Apple is, is to use something like a Clorox disinfectant wipe. That's perfectly fine on your phone. If you don't have that, a 70% isopropyl alcohol wipe or spraying a little bit of that onto a cloth and wiping it down. I'm actually saving all the isopropyl alcohol in our house for phones because it probably is something you want to clean two, three times a day if you're going out or receiving things from the outside. Becky, as always, thanks so much for joining us today. Pleasure. And when we come back, Dr. Jen Ashton with more key, clear information, the answers to questions from you and your families, and then caring with caution, how to be useful and kind with loved ones who are ill or fearful, and at the same time, keep your distance. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. 
Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. We turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton. So, Dr. Jen, we know we're always learning new things from you about this outbreak. So we'll get straight to the questions. These are some good ones here. The first one, I have two direct contact supervisors who are out sick and waiting on their test results since both of them have had direct face-to-face contact with the staff. If they test positive, should our entire division go into quarantine? That is such a hard question, Amy, because, again, we have to look at the impact that has on the workforce. The short answer is yes, but it also depends on the type of contact that people had with these possibly confirmed cases. Generally, the numbers that are important are closer than six feet, more than 10 minutes of time. So if you're in one of those categories and you're, you know, you've had that kind of contact with someone who tests positive, yes, the recommendations are self-quarantine at home for 14 days, meaning you stay away from people, you don't go in or out. Okay. And the next question, this is a, a big concern for people who have to go to work. I just started a job at the local hospital switchboard. Our office is in the emergency department. I have severe asthma and am a little weary. What can I do to protect myself even more? So a couple of things. Number one, for this particular question, that's a person who should talk to their health care provider and talk about whether or not wearing an N95 mask because they are in direct patient vicinity would be appropriate. But again, the idea is wipe down the surfaces, try to keep at least six feet of distance between you and your coworkers. That's the best we can do right now. All right. And Dr. Jen, we have been talking about the blood shortage in our nation right now. The next question, is it safe to donate blood? I would like to, but am hesitant as I want to know how I am protected. Should I be concerned? So, no, and it is more important than ever to see about the American Red Cross or local blood drives in your area because the donations have taken a dip, and that is critically important for all of us. Uh, The American Red Cross is taking so many extra precautions with people who are donating blood, so I would feel totally safe in doing so, and uh, kudos to that person for thinking of others. Yes, certainly we need their help. All right, our next question. Both my mom and I have been in self-isolation for 14 days and neither of us have symptoms of COVID-19. Can I visit her now without the worry of passing along the virus? Probably the answer is yes, but here comes the big but. It depends on whether both of those people have been absolutely meticulous with their isolation. In other words, have either of them come into contact with anyone else, even going out to get groceries during the last 14-day period? If the answer is yes, you can't say the risk is zero. And even now, I would still try to keep as much distance as possible when you're visiting someone. I know it's so hard. Everyone just wants to be with their family and sometimes you just have to be better safe than sorry. All right, Dr. Jen, thank you so much as always. And you can submit your questions to Dr. Ashton on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Social distancing has become crucial to helping slow down the spread of the coronavirus, but for many, keeping physical distance has left us questioning how we can be a caregiver. Helping us navigate how to support our loved ones during this pandemic is psychiatrist Dr. Janet Taylor. Dr. Taylor, thanks so much for being with us. And we know that everyone is feeling isolated, especially those who are sick, whether it's COVID-related or not. So how can you be a caregiver in this altered age where you can't physically be next to someone who needs that care. So caregiving in the age of corona is certainly a challenge, but it doesn't change the essence of caregivers. And that 
essence is about caring and comfort and managing the support. So use technology to convey how you're feeling and ask if the person you're taking care of what they need. Also, don't be afraid to ask what they need so you don't just assume and then get help if you need it. But caring for someone is not certainly going to be ever broken by what COVID-19 is doing. Yeah, everyone needs that emotional support during these times as well. Is there anything that caregivers should avoid doing during this time? Well, we know caregivers have some of the largest and highest numbers of stress, even pre-COVID-19. So my advice to caregivers certainly is to take care of yourselves, which means practice social distancing, washing your hands, not being around someone if you're sick. Make sure that you go to your own doctor's appointments and certainly use this time to learn to balance stress because caregiving is inherently stressful. Yeah, it certainly is. And Dr. Taylor, I mean, we have just been seeing and hearing these heartbreaking stories about people who are so critically ill, they're in the hospital, and then they can't have any visitors when they're probably at their most physical and emotional vulnerable uh, moment in their lives. So how do you support that person and support their loved ones who have all this fear but can't be there in person to help the patient? Well, it is devastating when you hear the stories, but you have to trust the process and know as evidenced by the dedicated people we have on the front line of, as our health care providers, they are taking great care of your loved ones while they're in the hospital. But certainly if you have an opportunity, maybe you can send in pictures that are in something plastic that can be wiped down. Perhaps you can tape your loved one's favorite songs and ask the, the nurses or staff to let them listen to it and write cards and ask the staff to read them to them. So certainly your loved ones know that you care about them tremendously. Yeah, you can get a little creative in these moments. And worst case scenario, there are many people out there who are truly suffering because their loved ones passed away and then they can't gather together to mourn their loved ones. So what can we do to help ourselves and others in this very unfortunate situation? Well, first is to acknowledge your pain and grief and give yourself a break in terms of how long that grief can last. I mean, we're losing a lot of things, not in addition to the physical aspect of someone, but jobs, relationships, a lot of things are changing. But know that when someone passes away, one of the best things you can do is establish their significance. And you don't need a funeral to do that. You can light a candle, read a card, think about that person, but do whatever you need to make yourself feel better about the relationship. And know that as time goes on, not giving yourself a limit on time, one day you will feel better. Yeah. And then just speaking in general terms, uh, we're here really pretty much surrounded with nonstop uncertainty and anxiety. What can be the takeaway from all of this? Well, the takeaway is that there is positive psychological growth that happens when we either encounter trauma or survive it. And some of those factors are that we have an improved sense of relationships with others. We have more love and kindness. We point to our relationships. And I think people spending time together, most of them are, are really reestablishing those bonds with their families. We have an openness to what our possibilities are so we get more creative. We recognize that we have inner strength and we are more spiritual. And lastly, we really pay attention to being mindful and, and see the beauty and significance of the day-to-day. -day. So there are all those, those aspects that we can learn if we pay attention and not get so focused on doom, but really look at our own inner purpose and find ways to explore and expand that. Dr. Janet Taylor, thank you so much. We really appreciate your guidance. Coming up next here on What You Need to Know, the helping hand from a comfort food king and the beloved institution of characters that have taught America's children for decades now coming to parents' rescue in this pandemic. Stay with us. You're listening to an ABC News special. 
COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. And welcome back. One of the industries hardest hit by the coronavirus pandemic has been the restaurant business. It's been predicted that over the next three months, five to seven million restaurant service and kitchen jobs could be eliminated. In response, renowned chef and restaurateur Guy Fieri has partnered with the National Restaurant Association Education Foundation to help launch the Restaurant Employee Relief Fund. The fund aims to send cash grants to restaurant workers impacted by the COVID-19 crisis. And here to discuss it with us is Guy Fieri himself. Thank you so much for being with us. First off, I want to ask how you're doing. What's your day-to-day life like right now? Well, I'm, I'm doing fine. Thank you. And I hope you are as well um, with my family, which is most important. And uh, just thinking about all my friends and family. I have cousins in Rome that are going through a tough time, of course. So just uh, just very fortunate to be, you know, where we are and, and lockdown safe. Yeah, no, I hear you. And and we just the numbers we just gave some of uh, what people are predicting is just staggering. Can you give us some real insights into the state of the restaurant industry right now? Well, you were right on with it. I mean, we've got tens of thousands of restaurants that are closing, uh, some for a short period of time and some probably forever. We've got millions, millions of uh, restaurant employees that are without jobs. And I mean, we're at 3 million now and estimations this could go to 5 to 7 million. So you're talking about a lot of families. Um, you're talking about a lot of hourly employees. You're talking about people living paycheck to paycheck. These, this is some, uh, this is some desperate times, and and that's why it's so great. We got together with the National Restaurant Association Educational Foundation because they have the uh, the program inside of the organization to receive donations and help get that money out to those that need it. And right now, we are making some great headway. We're almost just at the point of reaching ten million dollars and on our goal of a hundred million. But uh, the opportunity to help those that have been serving us forever is uh, is amazing. No, it is incredible indeed. So this restaurant employee relief fund how will it operate well when this idea first started we were talking about just doing it with the california restaurant association the great jock condi who's the president there and then it just developed into this program of going nationwide and of course the national restaurant association was awesome to just jump in and say listen we have the educational foundation we're used to giving out money and helping with uh you know scholarships and so forth we can handle this volume we're talking big volume and big money five hundred dollars for employee um and so the program will open up our website is rerf.us that's a great place to make donations it's also a great place to get information about receiving the grants and uh you know five hundred dollars to somebody that has no money ten dollars to somebody that has no money goes a long way and it's not just the money you guys it's really it's also that comfort it's also the recognition that your community that you've been serving for years and years in this industry is now giving you the support because uh, restaurants have been there for us forever right I and mean, our milestones our events our our fundraisings it was always the restaurants so now is a great time to to help out the great thing is is the national restaurant association educational foundation is ready to go and get that money out guy you've been in the restaurant industry for years and years what are your hopes for a full recovery when we're through with this virus well i've been in the restaurant industry my whole life and i know how important it is not just for people to eat but it's a social place it's a gathering place it's where we celebrate milestones and i'll tell you what's going to happen or what i what i hope will happen is everybody remembers their favorite restaurant their favorite chef and their favorite server and bartender and you name it and when this 
wraps up, when we're done with this, and we're, we've got a long road, of course, but when it happens, please go back out and visit your favorite restaurants. Don't eat out once next, you know, this this uh, coming week. Eat out 10 times. Get to go. Buy gift certificates, because if you want to talk about a group and, and uh, an industry that really needs support, it's the, it's the restaurant folks. And yes. again, RERF.US is a great website to visit, and you can get all the info you need. I love it. Guy Fieri, thank you for all you are doing and giving back. And of course, we can do our part as well. Thanks for being with us today. We wish you the very best. You guys are awesome. Thanks for keep, keep up all the information. Thank you very much. And speaking of information, let's go to Dr. Jen Ashton for her final thoughts today. Jen. Amy, I just read something fascinating that just came out online in Scientific American, and it's about how this global shutdown has affected the seismic noise that geoscientists are able to detect. They first noticed this in Belgium, and that this quiet from this seismic standpoint is actually making it more possible to detect things like earthquakes. So the metaphor, I think, is so powerful, right? At this time where everyone is sheltering in place, staying home, trying to protect others, that quiet is actually enabling us to hear things that sometimes we can't hear. So to me, that's the perfect segue into just the reminder that the chain is only as strong as the weakest link. We all have to take these steps now and maybe for a month or more to really make a dent in how this virus is spreading. And I do think that that human nature and action is incredibly powerful. So my hope is that we can do it. Yeah, powerful and beautiful. Dr. Jen Ashton, thank you so much. And when we come back, teaching little ones crucial information about staying healthy and safe with a little help from some familiar friends like Abby Kadabi. Hi, everyone. It's me, Abby Kadabi, and I'm going to talk to Amy about all the things we're doing while we're staying at home on Sesame Street. Talk to you soon. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19. What you need to know. Wash, washy, wash, washy, wash, wash your hands. Scrub them while you're sitting the sun. Wash, washy, wash, washy, wash, wash. <laughs> Welcome back. That was Elmo from Sesame Street teaching kids how to wash their hands in order to stay safe during this pandemic. This PSA, just one of the new videos released by Sesame Workshop under their new initiative, Care for Each Other. We're going to check in with Dr. Rosemarie Trulio from Sesame Workshop. Thanks for being with us, Rosemarie. And we'd love to start with some of the new content that you all are releasing because you're approaching this crisis, uh, thankfully, in a kid-friendly way so we can help kids and parents understand what's going on. So talk about these videos that feature all of the Muppets, yes? Yes, um, and Sesame Street has always been, we have a long history of providing comfort and support to children and families uh, during difficult times. And we're all adjusting to this new for now normal. So we put together content that will help children and families. The content is on our website and it guides parents in terms of how to comfort themselves so that they could be there for their children, as well as some playful learning activities uh, to create um, structure for the day. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly helpful for kids to see that even their favorite characters are video conferencing and can't be with each other. And that makes them feel like they're not alone. And parents are struggling now, not just to parent, but to be caregivers and teachers all while they're trying to work from home. So talk about some of the resources you've made to, to supplement uh, what we're trying to do with our children. Yeah, we really are there for the parents because this is a difficult time. Um, 
parents are children's first learners, but they're not educators. And so uh, there's a lot of pressure and stress on parents. And so one of the things we're trying to emphasize is flexibility. We know that children need routine and structure, but we want to remind parents that they can get those learning lessons in these everyday moments. So while we're making meals, uh, while we're getting ready for uh, bed, the bath time, these are all everyday learning moments. And so that's what we're trying to provide is to provide these tips and resources so that we're integrating these lessons and not saying, OK, now this is reading time or this is science time. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Any final advice for parents out there about wh- how they can best serve their children? Well, I think what's important is that, you know, there's always a, a silver lining here with children love to have this time with parents. Um, And so we need to be mindful of these moments. And so one of the things that we're emphasizing uh, on our website are how you can spend time together um, and, you know, go back to those good old days of maybe nestling on the couch and watching some Sesame Street and having these extended learning moments after viewing. It is a beautiful thing. Time has certainly slowed down for a lot of us. And if we can take advantage of it, it can be something that we all remember in a fond way with our families. And I know you're helping with that so much. Dr. Rosemarie Trulio, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you. That's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.